morning. So today we are starting into uh, a new teaching series here at Covenant. It's going to be a series that's going to take us through the summer towards the end of August. It's going to be a teaching series where we are going to work our way uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through uh, the New Testament letter of James, the book of James in the New Testament. Now, uh, the book of James, just so we know up front, is like a really wonderful opportunity and a really hard challenge all wrapped into one kind of beautiful letter. And the, the opportunity in it is this, is that it is a very practical book. It's really going to give a lot of practical information on what does it mean to live as a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, what's our calling to do that? And it's going to uh, challenge a lot of the behaviors we have. And that is the challenge, right? It's really cool and a great opportunity to say at the end of this series, at the end of this series, uh, 12 weeks from now, at the end of August, there's a good chance if you really dig into this that in some practical ways your life should look really different than how it does today. As citizens of the kingdom of God, which is the most glorious, wonderful existence that anybody can ever live. The most wonderful existence where you are called in to the eternal story of what God is doing in this world and that you are invited to participate in that and your life can make a difference on that kind of scale. It's an amazing thing to say at the end of this, there should be some very practical ways that I am a part of this eternal story that God is writing in the world and, and I'm better equipped to understand what that looks like. That's a really great, wonderful thing. But it's also the hard part. It's the hard part because one of the most difficult things for any human being to do is to relearn patterns of behavior. And one of the things that James is going to do is in a very seemingly non-Christian way, because he's not going to look at you going, how are you feeling about this? Do you feel affirmed? Are you okay? He's just going to kind of be in your face going, there are a lot of ways that you're living your life that you need to think about. And not just the ones that you would look at and going, yeah, I know, I'm kind of falling short there. He may ask us to really relearn some patterns of behavior that we think are okay, that we think are right. And he's going to say, you know, you need to, to really reconsider this. And he's not interested in, in if we're talking about it. He's not interested in our feelings about it. He's interested in his, you know, if we're forming a committee to study it. He is interested in whether our lives are different in action. Are our actions different because of God and because of Jesus and how much Jesus loves us and how much Jesus loves this world? We have a video that we're going to bring up here now. It's a video, some of you may have seen it. It's a video that's going to address this idea of how hard it is to relearn patterns of behavior. How hard it is to relearn patterns of behavior. We're going to bring this up and then we're going to talk about it. It's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. 
I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. Oh, no, 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 no. no, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in, how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. 
All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American <laughs> that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm back. Oh, it clicked, it clicked, hold it, it clicked. I got it, I got it. Okay, there it is. There was the moment. Okay, I can ride a bike. I tried to explain this to the people around me, and they just didn't get it. They thought I was faking the previous 20 minutes, and I couldn't get anybody to believe me. That looked like I faked that, didn't it? Yeah. Just a fake. Yes. You think I'm faking? You don't move. That looks so weird to like, You think I'm lying, don't you? I'm not lying. I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike, and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just knew that you can't forget how to ride a bike. So I learned three things from this experiment. I learned that welders are often smarter than engineers. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth, no matter what I think about it. So be very careful how you interpret things because you're looking at the world with a bias, whether you think you are or not. I'm Destin, you're getting smarter every day. All right. Have a good one. Okay, if you wanna support We're gonna stop it there. That, isn't that a cool video? Isn't that really neat? We have had images of wells. We have had images of boats. Paul, I mean, uh, James is going to ask us to rethink our patterns of behavior, and so we are going to be thinking about that in terms of bikes. James's interest is whether you and I can change our patterns of behavior to look more like what citizens of the kingdom of God ought to look like. And that will be one of the most glorious and one of the most difficult things that you will ever do. It will challenge assumptions about how we live and patterns that we have learned and accepted as normal. Let's bring a scripture up and let's start into it. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We learn to ride bikes backwards together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given you, but ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Now, James, as you can see, jumps straight into action, and he jumps into an arena that most of us don't like to spend a lot of time talking about. How do we handle our money, our wealth, our possessions, whether we have a job, whether we're given it through an allowance, whether we're given it through an inheritance, whether it's our parents' or grandparents' money, how do we handle wealth, money? It's a subject most of us don't like to talk about. But there is a breakdown, I believe, in our knowledge and our action, right? That's what this whole video is about, is that knowledge and action are just knowing something doesn't mean you're following it. James is interested in how our actions are, not what our knowledge is. And I would say to you that in our culture as well as in the church, the idea of being generous with the poor, being generous with those who have very little, is not something that we just don't know, right? I mean, think about it in our culture. We have phonathons, we have uh, telethons for uh, earthquakes, for tsunamis. We have to give to the PTA. We have to give to all different kind of local organizations. Then it comes to giving at the church, and we're supposed to be doing that and giving through our faith. We have all the knowledge in the world. We still live. There was just a recent uh, report that came out on, on the state of religion and spirituality in the United States, and there was a decline in those who consider themselves Christian but the decline was still just to 70%, meaning seven out of 10 people in our country still consider themselves to be Christian. Now, whether they get that, understand it, we don't need to get into that. My point is, they associate themselves with it. There is no more subject in the Bible that's talked about really any more than money, wealth, how to handle it, and how to be, as we call here at Covenant, extravagantly generous, breathtakingly generous. Does our knowledge of this equal action? Let me give you some statistics. National Geographic recently released a study and did a story on the fact that the average American lives on between 98 and 99% of what comes in to their lives. They give away to all philanthropic causes, the arts, everything, faith-based, less than 2% of what comes in. We have the knowledge. The knowledge tells us that in the Bible, the easiest teaching you're going to find on generosity is a tithe, 10%. What our actions tell us is that for most of us, the idea of giving away 10% is not even on the horizon. We're not even close to it. That's what the numbers say our actions are like. It's not about knowledge. We know what it says. But is that translating to action? Take this statistic, parents. The average American child in this country has 231 toys. Now, a toy can be an electronic thing. It can be apps you download. It can be different games. But 231 toys. Think about this. How many do they regularly use and play with of the 231? 12. Meaning 219 they don't. But we just keep giving. We just keep accumulating. We just keep getting stuff, right? Does it satisfy? Nope, but we're going to keep doing it because it's what we do. You could go through most children's homes, throw away when they're not there, and kids, we're not going to do this. But maybe, maybe, well, you might, but throw away half of their stuff, and they wouldn't even know it. 
And we are called to be extravagantly, breathtakingly generous with those who have so little. Or take this. NPR recently did a story that over the last 50 years, the average American home in terms of square foot has tripled in size over the last 50 years. Tripled in size over the last 50 years, the size of the average American home. Do you know in that time frame what is the single largest area of growth in commercial real estate in this country? Off-site storage units. Off-site storage units. Meaning in the last 50 years, the size of the average American house has tripled in size, and yet we have accumulated stuff at a rate that is far beyond that. 50 years ago, the houses were a third of the size, and there were no storage units. And we're called to be breathtakingly, extravagantly generous with the world around us that has so little. My friends, this teaching is 2,000 years old, but there may not be a culture and history that needs to hear this as much as we do here today. That the kingdom of God is built on those who have been given much, sharing and giving it away. We have all the knowledge in the world. Many of you who have been in church have heard countless sermons on giving and generosity and sacrifice and extravagant giving. It is simply not translating into action. So, rather than preaching the 31st sermon that you've heard that might be really intellectually stimulating, but not lead to any practical changes, I'm going to end the sermon today different than I've ever ended a sermon before. This is going to be an experiment, and it's either going to work or be totally crazy, and I'm not sure which one, but we're going to give it a try to see if it actually changes our actions, if we can learn when it comes to our finances to ride a bicycle backwards, because that's what God's calling us to do, So learn to live differently. The experiment is this. It is based on a hunch I have, and the hunch is, is that you will use money differently depending on how you acquire it, Okay. Here's what I mean. I want you to imagine today that you leave here and one of the places you have to go is you have to go to the grocery store, right? You got to pick up either dinner tonight or groceries for the week or whatever you're going to do. And when you show up in the grocery store, you get out of your car and on the floor, on the ground in the parking lot is a hundred dollar bill just sitting there. It's just, it's just right there on the floor. Well, you're, you know, a good Christian and you know, you're not supposed to take stuff. So you pick it up and you feel guilty and you look around at who are the other people pushing carts near you and you walk up and say, did, did you lose $100? And they're like, no, I didn't lose $100. Did you lose $100? I, I didn't lose $100. They're like, man, it's your lucky day. You found $100 just laying here. It's not of ours. But you still feel guilty. So you walk into and find the manager and you go up to him and say, did anyone report missing $100? I just found this laying on the ground in the parking lot. The manager's like, nope, it's your lucky. You've just found $100 sitting in the parking lot. It's yours. It's nobody else's. How would you go use that? What would you go buy? What would you spend it on? How would you use it? Second scenario, you don't go to the grocery store and find $100. Second scenario is someone who you really respect walks up to you, and I'm not saying you respect me because I'm not going to do this, but they pull out their wallet and they pull a $100 bill out of their wallet and they look at you and say, I'm going to give this to you. This is my money. I want to give this to you for you to use. But as I give it to you, and I'm excited about how you're going to use it, I'm going to call you in a week, and I want to figure out, I want to know what you did with it, because I'm going to be excited to hear how you use this. My bet is you would spend that $100 really, really differently than the $100 you just found on the parking lot of HEB, right? Wouldn't you? Seriously, I would. Yes, you would. You would. And if you don't know you would, then you're lost. You would, okay? (laughs) We all would. So... Here's the thing. 
James is doing this teaching based on the second scenario. And as Christians, what he's saying is we are called to think in that second scenario about whatever we have all the time. First thing that, that, that his, this teaching of giving to the poor is based on is that what we talked about on Pledge Sunday last fall, what you have isn't yours. And that is a matter of logic as much as anything else. You are a hardworking person, I'm sure, but most of the factors that have determined where you are today, you have no control over. There is no such thing as a self-made person. We love in our culture, oh, he's a self-made man. No, he's not. You might think of yourself that way. You're not. My wife and I started church. I understand the entrepreneurial thing. We started a church in our house. There was nobody there. We kind of, I got the work. I get the fear. I get all of that. Most of the factors, no matter who you are, that, you, that determine what you have today, you have no control over. A teacher that excited you, family you were born into, a situation. I have two little girls that are here today. They, you know, they're, they're, they're good kids. And one of the things we think about is, is about college, right? It's one of the reasons a lot of younger people don't like to give is that's our excuse at that time. There'll be others as we're older. But uh, is that, you know, well, there's college coming up and we see all those zeros. And every time I write a tithing check, there is a part of me going, you know, good luck. It's going to be, it's going to work out, I'm sure. But, <laughs> right? So I can't do it. I can't, I can't be extravagantly generous. I am aware of the fact that if they were born into other countries in this world by the fact that they are female, college would never be an option no matter what. That's what I'm talking about. They can't control that. They can't control what era they're born in into one, in what country, and neither can I. But it makes all the difference in the world. Most of the factors, and I know you've worked hard, that have gotten you to where you are today, you are not in control of, and therefore it is not yours. Everything that we have is given to us by God, and when we give, we are stepping out in faith, saying, Lord, I, I trust you're going to provide again. You've given it to me. I'm going to be faithful with how you call me to give. And so I'm going to trust that you're going to provide. That's the faith step. That's number one. What you have isn't yours. And number two, the number two scenario why you would spend that money differently in the parking lot is you know there's going to be follow-up. There's accountability, right? The person's going to call you going, how'd you use that a week later? It's going to change how you spend it. But James is saying that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God, this glorious time when the differences and the haves and the have-nots of the rich and the poor, this is going to melt away and we will all stand as one equal people before God. And therefore, as citizens of the kingdom, we need to be working for that day in the here and now. We need to understand that when the kingdom comes, God is going to look at every single one of us going, how did you respond with what I gave you? There will be an accounting for this. My hunch is you'd spend the money differently if you knew that were the case. But that would be like learning to ride a bike backwards because I don't know about you, but when I get my paycheck, I don't look at each paycheck going, Lord, you did it again, and how do you want to hold me accountable for how I'm supposed to use this? I don't think that way. But that's what James is saying we're supposed to think like. So here's the experiment, and I'm going to need five of you not who are perfect, but who understand and are willing to let us learn with you this week. And here it is. And each of these envelopes is $100. It is from the church's budget. And before any of you freak out, I went through all the committees, went through all the steps, 
half of you know about it already because you had to give okays to it that it would be done because we're Presbyterians and nothing creative can happen that doesn't take 19 different steps to figure out. So this has all been, for all the polity people right now going, this this was all followed decently and in order. And each of these envelopes is $100. It's the church's money. And we're going to give it to you. We're going to give it to you this week. And what we would like you to do is we would like you to think and pray about how you are to use it in your life, as a couple, as a family. And my hope is that all of you don't do the same thing, that you really think and pray how God wants you to use this money. And all we're going to ask is, is that over the course of the next week into next Sunday, you'll let us learn what you learn. How does this feel different than how you normally think about money? How do you discern it? What is different about thinking of money like this than how you normally think of it. And just let us hear your thought. Let us learn with you as you do this. This feels better to me today than preaching the 31st sermon on giving and not seeing a practical impact out of it. So, I need five volunteers. Here we go. By the way, uh, is Maureen here? Okay, if Maureen is not here... Uh, whoever I'm giving envelopes to, you have to go to the sound booth before you leave, and we need to know your name and your contact information. There's three. You got two more. <laughs> you just volunteered your parents. Awesome. <laughs> I, I like Allison and Kelly. Like, hand the envelope here. Just give it to me right now. And there we go. All right, that's five. This week, you, first off. You need to let Derek in the back know who you are and what your email address is. And this week, we, and I actually know all of you, so you're, uh, I'm Bob Smith. You know, you're like, no, we know who you are. So, but we want to learn with you. We want to learn with you about how this works and how it's different. And here's the thing, whether you got an envelope or not, you can still participate. Because James is saying, this is how you're to think about all that you have all the time. This is how we're called to live. This is what extravagant generosity looks like. This is how you learn to start riding a bike backwards. Not just understanding and knowledge, but in our actions being differently. It's going to be exciting to see what we learn this week. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn to ride backwards, that you would take learned and assumed behaviors we have about how things are supposed to function, and that you would reorient our actions to the things of the kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this week, give us open minds to learn new patterns, to learn new behaviors when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our wealth, when it comes to our call to be extravagantly generous in this world. And we pray and trust in your leading and in your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.